I think everybody knows how we should start. Three, two, one. Happy New Year! This is from the Book of Equanimity, uh, case 56. When Uncle Mishi and Tozan were walking together, they saw a white rabbit. It dashed in front of them. Mishi said, how swift. Tozan said, in what way? Mishi said, it's just like a person in white clothes being venerated as a prime minister. Tozan said, you're such an elderly and respectable man, and still you say something like that. Mishi said, then how about you? Tozan said, a noble of an ancient house is temporarily fallen into poverty. So I thought this would be an appropriate koan for today with this white rabbit that is... 2023 now, the year of the rabbit. Of course, in Chinese New Year, we don't celebrate the New Year until a little bit later, uh, later in January, but uh, the year of the rabbit. Last year, the year of the tiger. I think uh, this time last year, I shared a story about a tiger in Guishan. So just to recall that story. Guishan went to a mountain to prepare the establishment of a monastery and at the top of Great Gui Mountain, he built a mud hut of branches, straw, and mud. He ate chestnuts, berries, made friends with monkeys, birds, and rabbits. But nobody came. Eight years passed. Finally, he said to himself, this doesn't make sense. I'm supposed to be the founder of a great monastery, but here I am all by myself, in a miserable little hut, talking to monkeys. I'm gonna go back to civilization where I can be effective. So he packed his gear and started down the mountain. On the path, he met a tiger. The tiger grasped him by the sleeve. Guishan figured the tiger was trying to tell him something. So he turned around and went back to his hut. Soon after, three monks appeared. Imperial assistance was extended to build a great temple. In 820, the monastery of Guishan was finally built, and eventually 1,500 monks gathered there to study Zen under his guidance. So what will keep us on this path? What will keep us going? A tiger? What does it take? So the new year is a way of marking time, days, months, years. Of course, they go by quickly. It's something, of course, that's created by us. Right? It's a fabrication of sorts. It's arbitrary in some ways. But in Buddhism, we recognize that we use forms, conventions, time, ideas, labels, 
holidays like New Year's, we use them without being attached to them. We use them without being used by them. You know, as Buddhists, we look to the new year as a time to reflect on our own practice, to look back and ask the question, did we use our time well? And looking forward as well, how are we going to use our time? In one of the <clears throat> sutras of the, the Buddha recalls a story of a man who died and was brought before Yama, the Lord of Death, this mythical judge. And the attendants who brought this man before Yama said to him, they said to Yama that this man had acted disrespectfully throughout his whole life, that he had neglected his obligations to his family, to Brahmins, to his mother and father especially. And so Yama asks him the question, this man. He says, didn't you see the first messenger that I sent to you? The man said, no, I didn't. Yama said, don't you remember seeing an elderly woman or a man, 80 or 90 or 100 years old, crooked, leaning on a staff, trembling as they walk, ailing, past their prime, with teeth broken, hair gray, scantily or bald, skin wrinkled and limbs blotchy. And the man said, yeah, I saw that. Then Yama said, did it not occur to you, you being sensible and mature, that you are too of the nature to grow old, and to use that realization to free yourself from the fear of getting old. The man said, no, it did not occur to me because I was negligent. And so Yama continued to ask if he saw the second messenger, messenger of sickness. And again, he says, no. He says, I ignored it through my negligence. And so this happens a couple of more times, and each time the man admits his negligence, ignoring his responsibility to use these messengers to further his own liberation. And so Yama says to him, well, it's out of my hands. My hands are tied. The message here, of course, is that we all have to take responsibility. And the question really comes down to what will motivate us to come to life, to live fully. As we develop our practice, it's not just a matter of doing things carefully or mindfully, but really waking up to the messages that are always around us. It's hard when we're in a state of busyness, mind cluttered, in a state of self-protection, states of fear, anger, 
it's hard to see those messengers acting as teachers. We talk a lot about in Zen about not wasting. And so in this, you could also see this, that each person we encounter as an opportunity not to waste that. What is this person teaching me? And likewise, what am I teaching everybody who I encounter? How do I encounter another? And so this is really the spirit of the new year. To slow down, to pay attention to our lives. Our lives, as I often say, pass quickly. And in this case, like a rabbit darting across our path. How swift. How swift, as Uncle Nishi says. For people just to back up, for people new to koans, these, this case, this dialogue that I read in the beginning with Uncle Mishi and Tozan, these are practices. They are pointers to reality, to the deepest truth of our existence. And we take them up as meditation practices. So Uncle Mishi in this case calls out how swift as he sees this rabbit pass his path. But it's not just our lives that go quickly like a rabbit. It's also how our minds dart from thing to thing, from satisfaction to disappointment, right? From wanting to not wanting. Apparently, rabbits, as well as other animals, zigzag when they're being chased in order to avoid a predator. I recently saw an OVA documentary where butterflies were talked about, and they do the same thing. They flitter and change their path. Anybody who tries to watch a butterfly fly as it zigs and zags, very hard to track. This image of a predator chasing a rabbit is very reflective of how often we relate to ourselves, how much energy we expend in trying to corral, to catch our minds, knowing very well that they very rarely do what we want them to do. And so we all try all kinds of things to get them to cooperate, to catch them, right? Of course, at New Year's, many people make New Year's resolutions. That'll do it, right? This year's going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> with body, with mind. And it's not that this is ineffective. I mean, the power of vow is very important in our practice, in our life. <clears throat> but if we're not careful, we can also fall into the trap of these New Year's resolutions simply becoming one more way that we try to control ourselves, trying to control our minds, our bodies. I find that as people mature in their Zen practice, at some point they discover for themselves that 
the more they try to corral their own minds, the more they resist. The more they zigzag like a rabbit on the run. I think back to the uh, Buddha's own journey and how we're told that before he had his enlightenment experience, he, of course, tried the many paths that were available in the spiritual world at the time, the yogic traditions, the meditation traditions. He went from teacher to teacher, mastering all the disciplines that were available, surpassing the teachers that were teaching, given permission to teach by these teachers. But each time, entering into these profound states of concentration and bliss, he would come right back to his own dissatisfied mind, his own restlessness. And he thought there had to be another way, right? In my own training, it's, and I'm sure many of you can relate, you know, I would go to these, go to Sashin after Sashin, these retreats often seven days in length and silence, Sometimes, after lots of hours of meditation, finally reaching some kind of quietude, feeling some relief, having insights, seeing patterns in myself, sometimes very disturbing thought patterns. At times after the retreat, feeling really on top of the world, you know, and I think many people feel that as well. But then after a few days or a few weeks, right back to it, right, right back into my own shit. In the Buddha's own journey, he, at this point, doubled down on a strategy of control. He said, well, I can get to these blissful states and yet I'm yanked back into my own mind, so I'm going to torture myself. I'm sure he didn't say it like that. But that's what he did. He practiced the path of asceticism, of torturing his body to neglect the needs to see if he could get beyond the, his human needs, his desires, his craving. But at some point, that too, on the verge of death, he realized was a dead end. In thinking about that part of the story, I think that what the Buddha must have learned was that when he would go into these samadhi states, these states of deep concentration and bliss, and then come back again to where he started, he must have at some point realized that there was no way to escape his own mind. I can't help but think that this was the lesson. That there, the freedom he was looking for was not going to be found somewhere else in some mind state, in some special state, but rather to be found right here in his own mind as it was. And so he sat down and worked with no longer trying to escape. So in this koan, Uncle Mishi, 
and Tozon are walking. So this is a, a kind of a term of endearment, uncle, uncle in Chinese. He wasn't his literal uncle. He was an uncle in the Dharma, older. You encounter this in China. Tozan was a, uh, Tozan is, is Tozan uh, Ryokan. Wait, Tozan. Uh, his Chinese name was Dongshang Yangzhe. He was one of the founders of the Soto school. So Tozan, Soto. So he's a Soto master in China. And they were walking, and this little white rabbit darts across their path. <clears throat> now these two were very advanced in the Dharma, and they took every opportunity that they could to engage in Dharma dialogue, to see how they could relate their lives as they are unfolding in the moment to the Dharma. And so Mishi says, how swift. What was he getting at? Tozan says, how so? In other words, how do you see this in terms of the Dharma? In terms of life? In terms of the deepest essence? Mishi responds by saying, it's just like a person in white clothing being venerated as a prime minister. Sometimes that word prime minister is translated differently. Sometimes it's translated as something like a noble. Just like a commoner being appointed a noble. What was Mishi getting at here? A person in white clothes is, by, as I said, is a commoner in, in that time. A commoner being venerated as a prime minister, from rags to riches, suddenly, swiftly. Now, Zen, as you, many of you know, is sometimes called the sudden school of Buddhism. In contrast, you know the tradition, traditional way that many Buddhists view enlightenment is that. It takes lifetimes that the most we could do as lay people is to put in our time doing good deeds and abiding by the precepts and paving the way for perhaps a better rebirth so that we could then get off the wheel of birth and death. And yet the Zen masters recognized that no, that this isn't the case. That realizing your own true nature isn't something that we have to wait for. It's not something somewhere else, some other time. It can happen in a flash. Swift. Quick. Like a rabbit darting across our path. This is Mishi's response. This is true nature. In a flash. And yet, Tozan then says, 
you're such an elderly and respectable person, and yet you still say something like that? Mishi says, well, how would you say it? How about you? So in these dialogues, there's this beautiful back and forth. You, know? you don't get defensive. Oh, what would you say? How about you? Tozan says, a noble of an ancient house is temporarily fallen into poverty. This last line could be taken, I imagine, from the story in the Lotus Sutra. I think the last two talks or so I have mentioned stories from the Lotus Sutra, one of the primary Mahayana sutras. And in this story, to make a to sort of a condensed version, uh, this young boy who's the son of a king, the son of a noble, runs away from home and but then loses his way back and ends up, I think, being put in an orphanage or more or less forgetting his birth, his family, totally forgetting his roots as he grows older. And then one day, this young man comes back to, by happenstance, comes back to his hometown and his father, the king, sees him from a distance and recognizes him. And so has his guards go out to welcome him back. And this young man becomes frightened, thinking that they were not there to welcome him back, but just put him in jail or something. And so he runs off. The father hears about this, and so he devises a plan to get his son back. And so he asks one of his servants to um, approach this young man and ask him if he needs some employment and asks uh, if he would be willing to shovel out the stables of the horses, you know, the horse stables a nice lowly job that wouldn't sort of intimidate this homeless young man. And he agrees. And so he takes this job and begins this process of slowly gaining the trust of his lost son. And he and his servants slowly promote this young man. And the king, too, at some point, even become, comes into dialogue with him, not revealing his identity, but being but in the context of being his employer. And so gradually his son and this king form a relationship again until he's finally promoted as sort of the right-hand man of this king. And then one day the king confides in his now trusted companion, telling him that long ago his son had run away, never to be seen again. It takes a, quite a while for this young man to realize that he was the king's son and that he didn't need to earn his wealth, but that it was his birthright. A noble person who 
who's temporarily fallen into poverty. You know, it's difficult to see this, to see that we're all children of rich birth that have temporarily fallen into poverty. One of the things that people often say when they wake up to their true nature is some version of it's always been here. It's always been here. And that's why it's nothing special. It's so obvious. And yet it remained unseen in a flash like a rabbit that runs across our path. We realize that we haven't ever lacked anything. So in thinking about that story from the Lotus Sutra, I was reflecting on my own practice. And back 30 years ago when I began, I remember how intent as a young person I was in trying to live differently. I wasn't gonna be like my parents. <laughs> so intent and looking back so reactive you know like really reactive I didn't want a conventional life I didn't want to be like them based in fear and I think many people as young in their youth think that way that they need to be different and that's just a part of it. That at some point, after years of practice and perhaps some insight, we realize that there is no escape really from our life. We don't even want to escape. All we want is, you know, to be right here. At the end of our... Um, formal koan training in our lineage, we do something called Tozan's Five Ranks. And this is the same Tozan from this story. Then the five ranks are koans we work with, but they are actually really um, these poetic descriptions of the spiritual path. And the last of the fifth, the, the last of the ranks is the fifth rank. And there's a line from that that goes like this. Everyone wants to leave the ordinary current, but in the final analysis, you come back and sit in the ashes. Another translation is, while others strive to rise above the common level, you unite with everything, sitting quietly by the fire. the ashes of our own life. We come to see that there's no need for anything special. Really, not because there's nothing special, but because everything's special, as it is. Somehow through returning, as the Buddha did over and over again, to this ordinary mind, which is really what Zazen is about, Returning. It's a returning process. It's, there's nothing magical about the breath count. It's just returning 
you to the ashes, to your pain in your legs, to the wrinkle on your skin, to the tiredness, to the ache in your knees, right? This is the practice. All of it being noble. And so in the spirit of this year of the rabbit and this case and what we've been talking about today, I want to share with you an excerpt from this children's book by Marjorie Williams called The Velveteen Rabbit, also called or How Toys Become Real from 1922. And so this excerpt goes like this. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and a stick out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked Rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has fallen off or has been loved off. And your eyes drop out and you get all loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly. By the time you're real, I'd say by the time we have loved off our ideals, our expectations, our concerns, by the time all of those drop off, we are loose in the joints. But as she says, none of those things matter anymore. None of the ideals or expectations matter because we're experiencing what is. And she also says that it takes a long time. This shouldn't be neglected. It takes a long time. You know, Dogen, Zen Master Dogen said that there's no end to practice nor beginning to realization and no end to realization or beginning to practice. So I think at this time, new year, we can commit back to our practice that there's no end point, that no time frame. 
This path is a lifelong path. So each day, each week, each month, each year, we can enter the Zendo or the Doksan room. We can sit down on our cushions at home or get up from our cushions at home and recommit ourselves each time to self-understanding, to compassion, for ourselves, for others. And to, to do that, you know, it takes time. It takes time. 